This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock, Pastanac, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, Sputnik, Chuan Lai, Bridge on the River Kwai, Level Known, Charles de Gaulle, California Baseball, Stock Weather Homicide, Children of the Little Mide. Oh, I'm kind of nervous about this episode. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and all the reasons why the world is like it is today, all done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, are we ready for the next part of our beautiful adventure? We are so gosh darn ready. So today is a very somber topic, and we have a lot of questions about this. The topic, as Billy Joel sang it, was children of thalidomide. Now, Tom, you'll remember that thalidomide was a drug that was developed in the 1950s by a German manufacturer that hit the UK in 1958 and the US in the early 60s. It was intended to be a tranquilizer, but it was soon being used to treat morning sickness, leading to disastrous effects for the mothers and their children who were born with birth defects. Now, I'm just wondering, growing up in the UK, You're a little younger, or maybe a lot younger than I am, but what's your experience of kids who are suffering from this? Yeah, so I was born, Katie, in 1973, and thalidomide was part of growing up. You would see people whose mothers had taken thalidomide, and you would be aware, too, of the various campaigns um, that were run to try and get compensation. So it was part of really part of a childhood in the in the 70s and 80s in Britain in a way that I guess it wasn't in the States for you? Yeah, I wasn't really aware of that. And of course, we're going to get into this today. I mean, the fact is, is that there were people in the United States who were affected by thalidomide, and we're going to meet one of them today. Her name is C. Jean Grover. She's an American thalidomide survivor, and she's the communications director at U.S. Thalidomide Survivors. And we're also joined in the studio by Mikey R.G. She is thalidomide affected and is an advocate for thalidomiders in the U.K. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So, I wanted to ask both of you, starting with Mikey, what was your first awareness as a child of your disability? My first awareness of my disability was, I guess, when my father took me to a hospital in uh, London and people started poking and prodding around me to have a look to see what was going on. And it's like, why aren't you doing that to my brother and my sister? And it was because I was different and I was probably about seven and how were you different can you describe well I realized that I couldn't do certain things like reach my hands onto the top of my head and could I get something off a top shelf no it didn't occur to me that that was different because I would just pull a chair up and climb up but I soon realized that's not what everybody else was doing and how about you Jean my first uh, realization that I had a disability you know I think I was probably, I was oblivious to it until I was, I don't know, maybe four or five. And I was playing with kids in the neighborhood. And I remember I was always very bossy, just ask my mom. (laughs) And I was always, you know, leading some kind of uh, game. And the kids in the neighborhood followed me around generally, but there was a new kid in the neighborhood one day. And he said, she can't play with us. And the other one said, why? And she said, look at the way she looks. Look at her legs. Look at her arms. 
I, w- I used to walk around back then with prosthesis, and I had a very distinctive walk. So, yeah, I was very, very obviously disabled, and um, that's my first recollection. It's like, geez, I'm not the same. Can you describe the nature of your disability? Sure, yes. I was uh, born with bilateral focomelia. That is a trademark of uh, thalidomide, I understand. And uh, uh, it is missing long bones in both of my upper extremities. Uh, I have some issues with my shoulders. I have a few fingers in total, missing my forearms for the most part. And I also have bilateral, uh, for my legs, you ready for this? Proximal femoral focal deficiency, and that is uh, missing both of the femurs. One is a little bit longer than, very, very small, but a a little bit of a femur. The other leg, I'm completely missing my femur. Uh, I do have feet. Um, I have a total of nine toes. Mikey, what was it like growing up in Britain in in the 60s? Um, Well, interesting. I was was lucky enough to uh, go to private school. Um, so growing up in the 60s, I went to Rudolf Steiner School. There was just no difference. No, nobody treated me as though I had a disability. I mean, I have asked my schoolmates, uh, who with whom I'm still you know, know quite a lot of them, actually, and they kind of noticed it. But then I just became another person in the classroom um, and I was quite protected in that way. Did you know other thalidomiders growing up? Well, in the UK, we had a thalidomide society that was set up in 1962. And that was for parents of children with thalidomide and similar disabilities, because um, until 1973, none of us had been actually officially and identified as thalidomides. We just knew that that's what we were. So they hosted a meeting every year. And it was a Christmas party and it it was so much fun. It was always a pantomime. We were also done regionally. So at regional meetings that my father went to, he would take me. And then I got to know certain other thalidomiders who also came along to those regional meetings. And they are still my friends today. And how about you, Jean? Were you in a position to be able to interact with other kids who were going through what you were? Well, as you know, the uh, thalidomiders in the U.S., have never been recognized and are not necessarily identified as such. Uh, So growing up, I was uh, in segregated education. When I say segregated, I mean children with disabilities only. As far as meeting other kids, yes, I did meet other kids who looked like me. And because it was thought to be a random occurrence that I would have this very unusual disability. It was very odd and exciting to meet another kid who was like me. But none of us identified as the Littlemiters back then. That's so interesting. So yeah. in one respect, it's validating, I would have thought, to meet other kids who look like you. But on the other hand, you weren't able to have this feeling of community, like, hey, we're all in this together because we've all been affected by this one drug. You didn't know that at the time? No, not at all. Uh, And you're right. Um, When I look at it now, um, I can say that American thalidomide survivors are a little bit jealous, very, very happy for uh, our friends in the UK that they had community with each other, but a little bit jealous because we look at that and we're like, that would have been so cool to have been able to compare notes with people back then, uh, to be able to travel the way you guys did. I, I see these pictures on Facebook of people traveling and you know vacationing together and that kind of stuff. How cool would that have been? I can tell you that 
I have now at this point in my life met two other women who were both born in the same city and in the same hospital and the same year as I with identical disability. And uh, we met in our 50s for the first time. I call them my Cincinnati sisters. <laughs> Incredible. And talk to me a, a little bit, Jean, about the prosthetic limbs that you used. Were they at all adequate? Did they help you integrate with the world or were they a hindrance? Okay, so I um, currently, I still wear bilateral extension prostheses on my legs. Those were helpful. However, there was an attempt to fit me with prosthetic arms too. Those were completely useless. And um, I do not, have never used prosthetic arms. I don't know, probably Mikey has had the same experience. I don't know if they tried to fit you, but... Um, no, I hadn't tried prosthetic arms, but I, I just have to say, you know, Jean, when you talked about um, us going on holidays, uh, etc., that was um, always set up by the Thalidomide Trust, which is separate from the society. But going back to the prosthetic arms at our society events, as we were hitting our late teenage years, people just didn't want their artificial limbs. And so off they came and they got thrown into a pile in the corner <laughs> as we would party on a Saturday night. And it's <laughs> one of my strongest memories of my late teen years, piles of arms and legs just just dumped in a corner that's so wild it's like uh, handbags on the disco floor yeah, very yeah. freeing i'm sure what's so great about meeting people who are similar to you is that you see them doing something you go oh i didn't think of doing it that way or how did you do that or um do you ever have the same problem do you get this back problem or do you get shoulder problem or whatever and we can really discuss it and some of us even go much deeper than that and we talk about the psychology and the emotional side of living with a disability with a disability that's so visual that people stare at you and they comment on it it's you know wheelchairs people complain about being invisible but actually we're we're so visible not being in the wheelchair or having an upper limb disability which Jean will, will know about is that that you are just seen all the time sometimes you just think please stop seeing me just stop um, yes, that's a, such an interesting observation and one that I hadn't thought about. Jean, it's almost like uh, you're an unwilling celebrity. People are sort of ogling and, uh, you know, you're almost perhaps on display. How do you cope with that emotionally? Um, you know, I suppose, uh, you know, there is a component of pain to that. Uh, but there's also a component of, are you busy with living your life? And sometimes you, you're able to tune it out. You know, it depends. I think Mikey might agree with this. Depends on what kind of day you're having. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're just busy about stuff and, you you know, everybody's staring as you're going by and uh, you are okay with it. You're busy. I got stuff to do. I got places to go. I got stuff to do. And then other times it gets to you. Yeah. I don't know... If with Eugene but certainly with my children I noticed that they would notice and I noticed when I'm with friends that they notice and I think what are my friends doing I had a friend once sort of walk away walk after somebody I said what are you doing and she said oh they were staring at you and it's like oh come on just just leave them alone mm -hmm. does it make a difference who's doing the staring Mikey because children will stare because children don't know the rules in society that say they, they shouldn't stare but I guess they're also the most interested because they want to know what's going on. There's ways that children stare that are offensive and there's ways that children stare that are that are fun. I did something 
quite a few years ago. I, I think it's before I had children, so I didn't know any better. But I was in, in a Tesco or a Sainsbury somewhere. And um, these two children about the age of eight and nine spotted me. Um, and they were sort of nudging each other and, and prodding and like, doing secret pointing um, and I ignored them and I went off to the next aisle and they suddenly appeared in the next aisle and then I went to the next aisle and, and they were suddenly there as well or doing the same thing and I walked up to them and I suddenly just lifted my arms up and I went in their faces and waved my arms and, and they screamed and ran off <laughs> Um, and if they're hearing this I think it's great it was a real lesson I'm sure they never did that again (laughs) that's great I have to try that one so we should get a little bit more Mikey and Jean into the history of thalidomide into how the thalidomide scandal began and it begins pretty early in the 1950s Mikey in Germany yes it begins the official story is that it begins in 1954 with a company called Chemi Grunenthal. The drug was the chemical. So thalidomide is actually a chemical. Um, it's a chemical compound, just, just to clear it up. So th- the name of the drug was Distaval or Contagan or Softenon in different countries. But So when we talk about thalidomide, we're talking about the chemical. And this chemical compound was, as the official story goes, found by Kunst and Keller in uh, Grunenthal shortly after they'd started working there. And within two months of the discovery of this drug, they had patented it. I can't say that word properly. It had been patented. There are a number of nefarious characters, even at the early stage of this plot, Mikey. There is a man, Heinrich Muchter, who had been in the Nazi party, who had conducted experiments on prisoners at Buchenwald concentration camp. Reading about this story, it seems staggering to me that people with those pasts were allowed to hold positions of such power and authority. Yes, it is staggering. But um, if you're talking about a small company, they actually do hold a massive amount of power. But you can say, well, it's only just a little small company. It's just a company that sells soaps and perfumes. So they're going to be quite harmless within that company. But of course, what we know is that this chemical suddenly appeared in Kemi Grunenthal at the same time as these senior executives were also working in the company. There seems to be two competing narratives at play here, Mikey, when we get to the next part of the story, which probably reflects the court cases and all the litigation which will happen in the years to come. You read one part of the story and it says, oh, at this point, scientists have no idea that drugs can cross over from a pregnant mother to a fetus. Then you read the other side of the story and people are saying, yeah, of course, everyone knew that. This is the cover-up. Okay, so well, the, the great cover-up is that Enoch Powell, who was the Secretary of State for Health at the time in the UK, he implemented that story and it continued ever since. Of course, they knew that drugs crossed the placental barrier. They knew that with quinine in the 40s. It's a myth that has been perpetuated by Enoch Powell and by Kemi Grunenthal. So why do we get to the point where Kemi Grunenthal are clearly going to make a lot of money out of this drug? They haven't done the testing and yet they are allowed to take this drug to market. It did what it said on the packet originally. It was a sedative. It was a non-toxic sedative. Um, Then they changed what you could do with it for Mm. morning sickness. And, you know, there were no rules out there in the day that said it has to say what it says on the tin. There There was nothing like that. You could basically put out anything that you wanted and clearly not suffer the consequences. Jean, the situation in 
the US is quite different to the way that it will play out in West Germany and in the UK. And a lot of that seems to come down to one woman in particular, Frances Oldham Kelsey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I was going to add was as far as safety of thalidomide, there was uh, um, a lot of marketing around safe for women and children extremely safe. And then, of course, this fact that you could not overdose on thalidomide, you could take a whole bunch and you would not die. So, you know, there was no thought that it would be dangerous to women, uh, pregnant women, I should say. Now, Dr. Frances Kelsey was an FDA reviewer, and she uh, questioned the lack of animal testing on pregnant animals very wisely. She is no doubt a hero for preventing the FDA from approving thalidomide in the United States. Her sharp questioning uh, was in spite of all the huge pressure she was under within the FDA to swiftly approve this drug. And there was even a special rush to try to get it approved by the FDA before the holidays, which was a very stressful time. So, you know, if, if they could get that drug out there, more people would be using it because they would need to be relaxing, you know, you know, the stress of the holidays. And this will give me a little respite here. And she just she just dug her heels in. And she's like, I want to see more testing. I want to see more testing. Everybody was angry for her. And you can imagine in a man's world like the FDA was at the time. She was the only, possibly the only, I'm not positive of that, but one of the only for sure women that had to stand up to this kind of pressure there. Just quickly, for those who don't know, the FDA stands for Food and Drug Administration. So, Jean, Francis was a human shield, and yet the drug was still out there in America, your evidence of it, and how was it that it still was distributed despite her efforts? Well, in anticipation of what would surely be swift FDA approval, the um, drug companies began to distribute samples to doctors. That was commonly done at the time. And in this brief interim where they were waiting for the approval, which would surely come, uh, 2.5 million tablets were distributed around the United States to 1,200 doctors. These tablets, the doctors were giving samples to all ages of individuals. They were giving them to men, women, older people. And so among the group that they were given to were pregnant women because, of course, People knew of this miraculous side effect that thalidomide alleviated morning sickness. That was amazing. So, you know, the FDA approval never came. And then the the news hit that the drug was causing birth defects. And so it was never widely distributed in the U.S., or I should say more widely than the 2.5 million tablets. Right. So the first babies born with these catastrophic defects uh, occurred in the mid to late 50s. Mikey, how did the hospitals address this? How did they react? So in the 50s and 60s, disability was uh, horrifying. Many women were told, don't worry about your baby. We'll, look at, we'll take it away. Just have another one. We have a story of a thalidomider who was deemed dead and didn't want the mother to know and was put in a shoebox and put under the bed. Um, it's only when the baby cried and the mother said, 
but my baby's not dead. Um, we have many other stories, but they are all anecdotal. But they, they are horrifying stories. And of course, many children were abandoned. And interestingly for me, many of them lived 12 miles down the road from where I lived in Sussex, but I was unaware of their presence. Hmm. Shall we talk about the way that thalidomide affects the fetus? Because it seems very specific, Mikey, yes. around which day in the pregnancy the tablet was first taken as to which disability the child might be born with. Yeah, if you took the drug between days 20 and 23, you would have external ear damage. Eyes affected you between days 24 and 30. Uh, thumb damage between days 24 and 27. Upper limbs between days 24 and 33. Hips between days 24 and 34. So that's how it was so precise. And then there was um, deformed ears with 24 to 29. And then there are those who have thumbs. They've got a particular name. They've got three joints instead of two. So they basically look like a fifth finger. Um, and they, that happened between days 31 to 36. Jean, I want to get into something that is possibly difficult to talk about, which is the emotional consequences on one's family. Like this must have made a relationship with your mother perhaps quite loaded. I don't know in your particular circumstance how she coped with that or how the two of you talked about what had happened, because I imagine that parents may have felt guilt, even though it's not their fault. They just took something that was prescribed. Yes. Um, first of all, I have always considered my parents to be the first victims of this drug. And um, my heart really goes out to them for the um, what, how they suffered. My mother um, was given something by her doctor who she trusted she was complaining of nausea, wondered if she was pregnant. He gave her something. And from his hand to hers, not a prescription. And there, of course, as with everyone in the U.S., there is no way to trace what that was. But I, you know, I grew up with that story that she had been a very, very careful pregnant mother, had not even taken aspirin because she was so conscious of her health. And I respected her for that. And I believed her. And... After I was born, her doctor asked her, knowing full well that he had given her this in his office, if she had gone to Canada or to Europe and had gotten thalidomide. And it, with that one little gesture, which was gaslighting, really, making her think suddenly that this was her fault, um, I consider that to be an act of supreme evil that he, that he did. Um, and... I feel bad for my mother, and I always have. Uh, that has not changed for me since I, you know, as I've gotten older. Mikey, what conversations have you had or did you have with your own mother? Well, interestingly, um, thalidomide nearly destroyed my mother. You know, I had a, I had a bad start, uh, but I did eventually go home. Uh, but my mother left the family when I was three, and I only kind of reunited with my mother when I was 15, and then it was tricky because I was 15 and my father had just died. I have a very good relationship with her. We don't really, really talk about it. I mean, as far as she's concerned, well, I was told to do it and, you know, that was that. Mistakes happen and I know that she lives with the guilt of it because I know it destroyed her in the beginning and, you know, she ended up having a complete nervous breakdown and being hospitalised for it. When we, when we won the campaign here in the UK, she went, oh, good. 
Um, But we don't really have many conversations about it. But then I wasn't brought up with my mother. So I have a great relationship with her, but it's an adult relationship. Mm. That's a daughter-adult relationship, not a young child's reliant relationship. Right. And you're a mother yourself now. Yes. I'm sure as most of us do when we become parents, we understand or start to understand a little bit more what our parents went through when we were kids. How do you think about your mother's experience now that you are a mother yourself? Um, It's unbearable. It's completely unbearable. I mean, you know, when your children start behaving badly, you wonder what on earth you've done, you know, let alone seeing your, your physically deformed child every day, knowing that their life is going to be hard. So... Putting myself in my mother's shoes is, is quite unbearable to do it. And um, I admire her for, I admire every parent uh, of thalidomiders who have continued to live, quite frankly. Hmm. Right, let's just take a little breather there and have some ads and we'll be back in a moment. Hello, it's me again. I've got a podcast called Dot Com, the documentary series about the people of the internet. And I just want to let you know that series two is out now. It blasts open the door on Reddit, the front page of the internet. It's kooky. To me, Reddit is one of the last bastions of actual communities online. It's sinister. Reddit has really always prided itself on being the mirror that it holds up to society, right? That society has a lot of imperfections and messiness and destruction and violence, but there's so much good there as well. It's some of the biggest, most shocking stories of the century. I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian family. I feel like every time there's some big scandal going on, Reddit is 100% a contributor and an antagonist to it. Just search for .com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe now. So how long was thalidomide officially on the market for? And Mikey, how many people were killed or damaged by this drug? So thalidomide came on the market in in Germany uh, a little bit before it came here in the UK. We reckon about 100,000 babies were affected by thalidomide. Most died in the womb. Those that survived the womb uh, died at birth. Those who survived birth most died in the first year. Those who survived the first year most died before puberty because of the internal damages that they had. So currently alive today in the UK is 442. That figure goes down and then it goes up because people are still coming forward. Such is the shame of thalidomide that people are waiting till their parents have died before they they sort of say, is it possible that I'm thalidomide? So we probably had going through our charitable trust over 560, 570 people. Um, I believe in Germany, there's about 3,000. In Sweden, about 100. In Canada, about 100. And then in Australia, there's uh, 38 who were the original recognised and another 100-odd who have been recognised in the last 10 years. And then the unknown, and that's the United States. And we're waiting to with dread to hear that number. That's so interesting to me that uh, the U.S. was behind in terms of awareness of thalidomiders and the effect of this drug gene, because it seems that America takes pride in being ahead of the game in terms of scientific developments and positioning themselves as a a humane and fair nation. Mm -hmm. What is uh, the situation in America nowadays regarding increasing the awareness? Is it still an uphill battle? 
Yes, it is still an uphill battle. Uh, we do have a not-for-profit. Well, I should say that thalidomide survivors really began to find each other through a Facebook group in 2016, so we are that new as an organized That's group. That's astonishing it's that late. Mm. Isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, you know, everybody is just spread out in this vast country, you know, we and, and people would find each other here and there, but didn't put the pieces together. Um, why did the story become so difficult to connect with? And, you know, I, I guess I have my own theories. And that was that the Francis Kelsey uh, story of saving America from the thalidomide tragedy was just such good news uh, in the 60s that Americans clung to that. Because if you look at what was going on in America at the time, you know, it was an era of civil unrest. You know, we had the war in Vietnam. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis. John F. Kennedy was assassinated. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, and we had all of these uh, protests, riots. You know, it was just bad news. And Americans, I believe, wanted to cling to this good news. And so deep did this misconception run that uh, the media did not pick up or pursue the story that there must certainly be survivors because there were so many tablets distributed. They didn't run that story. They wanted the good news. So here we are all over the country, separated from each other, and... Uh, you know, just beginning to organize. We do think we, in our database right now of individuals who have contacted us and found us through our website, usthalidomide.org, we have about 75 people that we have connected with. And that is without any advertising or really concerted message getting out. And Trust me, we are not going to let that drop. We are forging ahead. We will not go quietly into our later years. We are going to find everyone and we are going to, we are going to advocate. So Jean, you talk there about media interest in this. Mikey, let's get into the story of the campaign in the UK, particularly that run by Harold Evans, who was the editor at the Sunday Times. Yes. Well, Harold Evans was actually um, editor of the Northern Echo and he'd done a story, I think, in 1968 on thalidomide. And then he became editor of the Sunday Times. Um, and Distillers offered, um, I think it was about a million pounds. Distillers being the company in the UK who had the license to yeah, the drug. Yeah, so they were the producers of the drug in this country. No, they were the distributors of the drug in this country. That's right, distillers. And it was David Mason who was, you know, going backwards and forwards to America. And, um, and David Mason had a daughter David, who was affected by thalidomide. Yes, David Mason had a daughter called Louise, um, who sadly died three or four years ago now. Um, and she was... She was one of our worst affected. She was four limb deficient, as we call it. Um, huge character, absolutely hilarious. She went to um, that local school of mine, and um, she honestly, when you hear her laughing, you used to just used to crack you up as well. But sadly, she's gone. And um, they got together, David Mason and Harold Evans. They were able to work. It's very helpful to have the media on your side when you run a campaign. Thankfully, Harold Evans took us on. We kind of like became his children in the end, and he had a, a very close relationship with us uh, throughout our lives until he died I think it was last year wasn't it or the year before he nearly went to prison for us because he he wrote about thalidomide when there was a gag order because it was going through the courts but he managed to get an article in the papers mm. 
And David Mason's campaign against the Sillers resulted in a 26 million pound settlement in 1973? So what happened was distillers were offering one million and David Mason kind of said, well, actually, that works out about £7,000 a limb for his daughter. And he didn't think that was appropriate. So they did increase it to three million, but actually then it went to 20 million. So the, the payout that distillers made was 20 million. But because it was a discretionary trust, set up as a discretionary charitable trust, it was taxed. It was an oversight. And the government said, well, actually, we have to tax you on this. Oh. So then uh, some extra money was put into the charity for tax. But what we we worked out was that over the years, um, by 2002, the government had given us approximately £12 million to our charity to cover our tax bills. And our tax bills was at least over £18.5 million. So we had still paid tax on our on our income from the Thalidomide Trust. Gosh, you can see the situation was just so fraught and difficult because it's emotional blackmail. Oh, yeah. Distillers want to just settle this thing and just, you know, throw it under the carpet. But Mason was uh, was adamant that everybody should be treated fairly. But you can see that the parents are probably desperate. And also it's costly to have a disability, isn't it, Jean? I mean, there must be so much money involved in everything you need to do to make your life livable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you just take a look at, you know, driving, uh, for example. And if you want to drive, you can go out and buy a junker and just get it and in and drive. Hopefully it runs. But uh, if you, in my case, I, I drive with hand controls. I use a scooter for distance and I need a van with a lift. So at the minimum, I have to spend 40000 bucks just to start with a vehicle. And then the uh, additional stuff goes on top of that. And another thing, you know, when I bought my home about 20 years ago now, I had to put about $30,000 worth of modifications into the home before I could even like really get in. I had to put ramps on the front and the back. And this is a ranch house, you know, so I, I started with it as accessible as I could, but it's still very, very expensive. With no, no assistance, you know, you figure American survivors have not been recognized or compensated. Most individuals are facing just kind of a mountain of disability and disability-related debt. Mike, it seems, listening to you and Jean, there's almost two aspects to this. There is the original tragedy of the way that thalidomide is marketed and used. And then after that, there is the scandal of the long battle for compensation. Mm. We've heard about what happens with distillers. Tell us about the criminal trial that takes place in Germany of Kemi Grunenthal, because that at the time, so this starts in May 1968, there's six years examining 5,000 case histories, 350-odd witnesses, 70,000 pages of evidence, but in it, it suddenly shut down in 1970. Oh, this is really interesting. So we have evidence, we found it all in the archives, of how the uh, German federal government interfered in a criminal trial that was being held by a state government. And it was basically the federal government shut the uh, criminal case down. It was quoted, oh, it's in the children's best interest, we need to get them compensation. Um, the Germans received a pittance and part of the deal was that Kemi Grunenthal would take no liability and no responsibility and the German government took over the compensation scheme for the Germans. That's what happened then. They, they broke all the rules and they, they interfered in a criminal trial. There is a line from Harold Evans um, talking about Grunenthal. He describes them as 
Denying, delaying and obfuscating. I don't really know what obfuscating means. It's <laughs> a great word. They're basically getting in the way as much as possible. Oh, yes, yes. It seems extraordinary, Katie, from everything we've heard and the personal testimony of Mikey and Jean, that the company at the very heart of it should not admit culpability, that instead they should fight their side of this tragedy rather it, than the victim. It's absolutely obscene and disgusting. I mean, I, I cannot believe it, especially uh, when you look at all the archive footage of babies, you know, innocent little babies, children, beautiful little faces struggling to play, struggling to feed themselves, just struggling to live and be in the world to see the faces of these affected and to be the company that had perpetrated this and not have the empathy or the guts or the grit to step up to the plate. I just find it um, repulsive. They, you know, they had on their website until 2009, 2010 stories that um, that it wasn't their fault and um, that they had given compensation and neither were true. We got them to take that down. They eventually took that down off their website. Anger can be a very powerful emotion, Mikey, and sometimes it can be very useful, but it can also overwhelm us sometimes how do you deal with the anger that you may feel the anger that i was that a company doesn't pay compensation the anger that i have to live every day with a disability i don't really have an anger as such you know if i did i'd be exhausted and i'd probably be dead by now if i still had the anger or i'd have gone mad and i know many thalidomiders who are still very very angry and i think we're all angry but anger is the wrong word maybe gene might be able to think of a word it's not anger what is the word gene um, determined? I don't know. I mean, I, I maybe it's a little different in the U.S. I mean, we have a mission in the United States. And, you know, frankly, as far as anger, you know, I've kind of turned mine into my, my hobby, which is my volunteer position at U.S. The Little Survivors, you know, is doing their communications. That's, that's my hobby. And I really am determined to uh, fight for recognition and to set the story straight for U.S. thalidomide survivors, you know, I mean, in our community, the misery, the the suffering is running pretty deep. I mean, we have survivors. For example, I can think of one man who he was born with limb deficiencies and a jaw deformity, and has never ever been able to afford dental implants that he needs. He says he would like to eat, be able to eat peanuts again. We have people that can't afford, you know, basic maintenance on their homes, and we have people who uh, can't afford their medications. We have individuals who uh, need to remain living at the poverty level just so they can qualify for aid service to have someone help them get out of bed in the morning. The misery and the suffering runs deep in our community, and uh, I'm turning my anger over that into purpose. That purpose is much needed, and all the gasoline and battery power that you can offer, I'm sure, is so welcome amongst the community of thalidomiders in America, because not only are you working every day and every night with your own physical limitations, but also the 
it seems the denial in society that thalidomiders exist, and then add to which in America, you don't have a national health service, so you have to pay out of pocket for your medicine and any treatment. So it just seems like the hardships are piled on one after the other for people in your situation in America. Yeah, there, there's... Um very little awareness. And so that is one of our hugest goals is to conquer that. You know, I met a guy the other day uh, who is my age, who has a disability. And um, I mentioned to him that I am an American thalidomide survivor. That's been a relatively recent uh, label that I've embraced for myself. And he said he didn't really know what thalidomide was, but guess what he said? He said, but I did hear it in that Billy Joel song that said, Children of Thalidomide. And uh, I thought, dang, that's great timing. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and thank you, Billy Joel. I just want to say that I am a huge fan of Billy Joel. And uh, his song for so many years has been America's connection to thalidomide. And I might add that I'm sure that when he wrote that lyric, in his mind was the picture of the children in Europe and in the UK. And he did not even know that right next door, right in his own backyard, he had fellow Americans who were also thalidomide survivors. It kind of gave us identity and a connection and renewed curiosity all of these years to pursue this and to find our connections. I love that perspective. I mean, it's true that Billy, in mentioning the condition, must have made you guys feel seen. Yes. Great way to put it. Uh, yes, because he was an American. He's a, a great American and, you know, a, a performer. And that was such a such a huge hit, the song was. And uh, really, for a lot of people, the only connection to the word thalidomide, because it has disappeared from the American uh, conversation for so many years because they thought that we had conquered it and we had been spared. Mikey, that's a really interesting way of looking at it for me because my generation is familiar with thalidomide. Are the subsequent generations, the kids who grew up in the 90s and the noughties, do they know what thalidomide is in the UK? No, they don't know what it is at all. Um, it went out of the history. It's not in history books. It's not in science. It wasn't anywhere. And we weren't in the schools anymore. We were that age where we were too old for all of you or the, the next generation coming along. But interestingly, it's come back into the curriculum. So my daughter's 23 now. And I think when she was about 13, uh, she was asked in science class. Um, I think they got about two and a half or three minutes on the subject of thalidomide. And um, they were told to go make a presentation. So off, off she went, came home to me and we made this great presentation together. And uh, she sort of made the teacher let her present it in the end. No, you know, the whole class said, actually, Jessica must do this presentation. And she did. And the, the science teacher just stood there with his mouth open. He had absolutely no idea about any of the real truths of thalidomide because it, what, what was that? That was 10 years ago and he was in his 40s. So he also was not a person, uh, he would be in his 50s now, who knew anything about thalidomide, just that he'd read it as a one-liner, realised it was put back in the curriculum. Oh, this strange thing that did something in the 50s and the 60s. I mean, it changed the whole of the face of medicine, really. You know, in, in, in here in the UK, we got the 1968 Medicines Safeties Act, which then set out the rules of why you and how you must protect new drugs, you know, how, how you have to do the testing. And out of that, eventually developed the MHRA, 
which is the Medicine Self-Regulatory Agency. Drugs still got through. You've got a huge tragedy happening, unfolding right now on sodium valproate and epilim, of which I'm also very involved in the campaigning. That got through, but it seems most haven't got through. We haven't had another obvious repeat of something like thalidomide. Mikey and Jean, thank you so much for sharing your stories with Katie and me today. And Jean, just before we go, just tell us a little bit more about the campaigning you're doing over the next year or so. Over the next year, there will be a major Random House book coming out that is by Jennifer Vanderbuss, and it is going to be called, the latest title that I have here is Wonder Drug the biggest pharmaceutical scandal of the 20th century. It has the stories of a lot of the American thalidomide survivors in it, as well as a showcase of the role Francis Kelsey played in uh, the American story. We also have produced a uh, documentary film starring a whole bunch of the United States thalidomide survivors. And when we were making the film, we wanted so badly to use We Didn't Start the Fire, as well as some (laughs) other Billy Joel music. We did our best to figure out how to contact him. So, uh, yeah, you know what I would like to say is if he listens to your podcast, which I hope he does, if he wants to give me a call, he can can call me on the uh, number that is at usthalidomide.org on our website. I am the one that answers the phone there. (laughs) That would be my dream. That would be my dream that we could actually connect with Billy Joel. Okay, Billy, if you're listening, if you're listening, you know what to do. Put your digits on that dial. Thank you so much, Jean and Mikey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. Do you know what, Katie? So much of that episode was fascinating and so much of what we were hearing from Mikey and from Jean was pretty inspirational. Yeah. I also think Billy deserves a little pat on the back from us. Yeah. And I'd never thought about that before. No, me neither. Yeah, the fact that he, I mean, you know, he's got his finger on the pulse. But as Jean pointed out, there wasn't a lot of awareness in America of people affected by thalidomide. So for him to shine a light on it, I don't even think that he would be able to predict that he would enable people who are survivors of this drug to feel like they mattered and they counted. That's the power of song, Katie. It's the power of this particular song. It turns out that Billy Joel is an even deeper guy than I gave him credit for. Now, if you would like another crowd podcast to listen to, Katie and I would like to recommend The Secret History of Flight 149. It follows the stories of the passengers and crew of British Airways Flight 149, which was taken hostage by Saddam Hussein in August 1990. What followed has been dubbed the most shocking government cover-up of the last 30 years. And now there's a podcast about it, reported by journalist Stephen Davis. Why was the plane allowed to land at all? And why have secrets and lies persisted for so many years? Just search for... The Secret History of Flight 149 and subscribe. Oh, Tom, so next time on We Didn't Start the Fire, Billy is taking us into the world of Buddy Holly. Favorite Buddy Holly song, Katie? Begasu, Begasu. That's me doing a rockabilly hiccup. 
Katie, that is one to look forward to. In the meantime, listeners, don't forget to follow us on the socials at Spread That Fire. And please do leave us loving reviews on your podcast app because we love reading them over breakfast and it really helps spread the fire. Spread it! <laughs> I like the way you spread it, spread it. I like the way you spread it, spread it. <laughs> <laughs> Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Do you want more crowd podcasts? Let me tell you about the Crowd Stories channel. It's where you can find all of Crowd's documentaries. In one place. And for just £1 a week, they're ad-free. Addictive documentaries like American Vigilante. I'm a monster hunter. It's what I do. And murder in house too. I know you know what happened. You want to keep it to yourself, you suit yourself. You're going down. Unbelievable investigations into government cover-ups. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. And immerse yourself in the stories of death of a rock star. Just search for Crowd Stories on Apple Podcasts. And hit the subscribe button. See you there. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.